everybody, welcome to Secondhand Stories, and happy Thanksgiving to our American listeners. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. We appreciate you tuning in with us, whether you're listening on Thanksgiving Day with your family, which I'd recommend, or sometime later in the weekend. I picked two stories today that involve the beloved old people in our lives. Sure, they can be frustrating at times, like at the grocery store where I just was, but they should be celebrated, and hopefully these stories make you feel good about seeing your older relatives in the upcoming holiday season. First up, we have Memories of Smoke by Sarah Bigham. Sarah Bigham teaches, paints, and writes in Maryland, where she lives with her kind chemist wife, their three independent cats, and an unwieldy herb garden. She began writing last year as a way to cope with a series of chronic pain diagnoses. Her work appears in Bacopa, Entropy, Fourth and Sycamore, Pulse, Voices from the Heart of Medicine, and elsewhere. Find her at www.sgbigham.com. That's S-G-B-I-G-H-A-M.com. Curling finger wisps of smoke rise languorously upward toward the late May noontime sun, emerging from the smoldering end of a cigarette held by a serious-faced, straight-backed older woman wearing a white blouse, a serviceable skirt, thick hose, and a hat of peacock blue. Sitting well across the broad flagstone patio of High Mirror's Cafe, Leonora is captivated by the hypnotic movement of the white vapor spiraling into the air. Her book group, a monthly fixture at the cafe, is discussing some kind of postmodern novel Leonora did not even bother to purchase after reading the tepid reviews online. This group, like many of the others she has tried over the years as she moved from place to place in the States, seems to be a poor fit for her. However, it is an opportunity to have regular interaction with other women. In a house filled with a husband and boys, and a small workplace composed nearly entirely of men unacquainted with the metrosexual trend of personal grooming, Leonora relies on strategically placed air fresheners to get through most days. Being relatively new in town thanks to her husband's work transfer, it has been hard to find women friends. However, these book group members speak of shoes and sip complicated drinks with seemingly no fat and few calories. Why they don't just order black coffee, as Leonora reliably does, is beyond her. Leonora is also the only one who seems to consume any actual food during these lunchtime gatherings. She used to order a salad, returning stealthily to the cafe for a bakery item after choking down dry spinach and other field greens she is convinced are actually weeds that grow beside suburban roadways. Then she decided to skip the salad entirely and move straight to the cafe's wonderful apple strudel. The book group seemed not to notice the strudel, or Leonora. This month's discussion leader exclaims over a comment from a participant who felt unfulfilled by the amorphous ending of the novel. Definitely time to find a new group of women, thinks Leonora as she takes her first bite of strudel, the nuanced taste of German spices mixing with a faint whiff of tobacco from the swirling smoke at the other end of the patio. Leonora's memory flashes through visuals of the Great American Smokeout posters she distributed as a Girl Scout. The bald head of a dear friend valiantly attempting experimental chemo to target the malignant cells running rampant in her lungs. The plastic yellow chair in the smoky break room, where Leonora ate her lunch during a particularly distasteful summer job on an assembly line before smoke-free caught on as a concept for public spaces. The rasping voice of a squirrely high school English teacher who raced down the fire escape with some of the students to light up between classes. 
the mirrored ceiling of a virulently pink room on the smoking floor of a hotel room in Vegas, where she found herself during a layover flight gone wrong. Each image brings an immediate, negative, visceral reaction to tobacco. But the smoke itself is another matter entirely. Leonora smiles into the still-warm coffee mug as her memory flies across thousands of miles and the solid heft of her middle-aged body morphs into the leggier version of her youth. The trekking adventure Leonora agreed to in 1987 was, in hindsight, a poor vacation choice for a young woman more suited to strolling through gardens and sampling handmade chocolates than joining the Peace Corps and snacking on fried crickets. But, her globetrotting friend Pam assured Leonora that adventure travel was going to be the next fad and presented her with a handful of pamphlets to peruse. In short order, Leonora ruled out shark cage diving. Even the beautiful overwater hotel rooms wouldn't sway her on that one. Rock climbing lessons, requiring participants to pack a seemingly endless list of carabiners and other concerning equipment. A biking trip up what looked like a mountain. No, there weren't any trips going down the mountain. Something about not providing enough of a challenge. And building houses in economically challenged countries. A worthy cause, but one that required actual skill with power tools. So, trekking through Austria and West Germany was the winner. It sounded almost pleasant. After a long international flight that was uneventful, save for wading through the wall of haze in the rear smoking section of the plane in order to reach the impossibly tiny lavatory, the trip began auspiciously enough, with sunny skies, low humidity, friendly travel companions, and a seemingly trustworthy trekking guide named Hans. Pam's last-minute plan of introducing herself to the tour group as a Canadian instead of a U.S. citizen led to her having a larger circle of trekking companions than Leonora, who had great trouble falsifying information on the spot. After introducing herself as Leonora from West Virginia, it seemed impractical to create a narrative of a little-known section of a Canadian province that just happened to share a name with the U.S. state. Thanks to a general international distaste for the kind of American bravado depicted in the previous year's Top Gun movie release, Leonora quickly realized that her status as a U.S. citizen made some of the other trekkers a bit wary. On the first day, Pam strode off at a record-setting pace, followed closely by a quartet of Scandinavians in matching tracksuits, all of them flying over the gently sloping terrain with ease. The actual Canadians in the group, most of whom were friends from a bird photography group, formed a solid pack in the middle, while the remaining tourists strolled along at the back, content to admire the landscape instead of conquering it. Leonora decided these were her people, and she would stick with them which worked for about 45 minutes, until she realized she needed to pee. The feeling kept building, her bladder stretching uncomfortably until true pain set in, followed by nearly unbearable burning. After initially trekking through tree-covered areas, the group was now in barren territory, with little cover. Finally, Leonora spotted a gently sloping area off to the side of the pathway. If she crouched low enough, she reasoned, nobody would see her. The other trekkers were all ahead of her anyway. She trotted to the identified area while simultaneously tugging at her pants and craning her neck to make sure no one was looking. As she placed one booted foot onto the embankment, Leonora lost her balance and slid helplessly on the loose stones, ultimately landing awkwardly near a rivulet that was much farther downhill than she originally imagined, trekking poles now hopelessly out of reach. Leonora realized she had a series of challenges to deal with. Most importantly, her underwear was twisted around her hips, 
situation in need of immediate correction. Never mind her rear end with what felt like rug burn. Also important was the need to summon one or more of her fellow trekkers to alert them to her ordeal and request assistance in gathering her canteen, hiking snacks, and sunglasses. Finally, her left leg seemed to have fallen completely asleep, and what looked like a small tree branch was now protruding from her thigh. And so, Leonora found herself in a tiny German town awaiting medical clearance to fly home with a broken femur. The trekking group had been most kind, and Pam was determined to stay and play nursemaid, but caregiving was not one of her stronger attributes, so Leonora waved her off to rejoin the trekking group and her Canadian countrymen as they continued on their search for Eurasian kestrels. Before leaving, Pam and Hans located a one-floor apartment on the first level of a home in town where Leonora could convalesce before returning home. The bone seemed to be healing well, but she had sustained a nasty compound fracture. It was hard to convey the whole picture of her medical situation via transatlantic phone calls, with their characteristic long pauses, echoing words, and random clicks. She tried to patiently explain the extent of her injury, often with little success, until her father shouted, Right through your lower leg, just like Theisman. Goddamn, kid, that's a career-ending injury. You hang in there. If you need us, just say the word, and we'll be there. We meant her father, Frank, and his brothers. Richard and Peter, both confirmed bachelors in the parlance of the time, who had moved into the double house down the street after Leonora's mother had passed away from cancer when Leonora was only eight. Frank, Richard, of 210 West Lincoln Avenue, and Peter, of 212 West Lincoln Avenue, were the trio of caregivers Leonora relied on throughout her childhood. Frank had buried a wife, raised a daughter, and led countless men on construction crews, but had never been on a plane let alone out of the country. Richard had survived Vietnam, just barely, and swore he would never voluntarily enter a flying death machine again. And Peter's sinuses were not a good fit for high altitudes, as he learned from his first flight when he landed in Denver and promptly rented a car to return home to West Virginia rather than get back on a plane. So, Leonora decided to make do with regular phone calls and to accept help from her father and uncles in the form of wired money to cover expenses while she was immobile and on the mend. The staff of the tiny local hospital had been efficient and pleasant, but seemed confused by Leonora's complete inability to communicate in any language other than English. She herself was embarrassed by her linguistic shortcomings and was most appreciative of the efforts the doctors and nurses made to use English when possible. As luck would have it, a local high school student was doing an internship of sorts at the hospital. Stefan knew English quite well and was frequently sent to help explain or translate for Leonora. He was also the one who kindly transported her to the long-term rental after her stay in the hospital and explained where she could find basic provisions in the small town. She arranged to pay him for running basic errands and acquiring groceries. The tiny apartment was perfect for her. A few hops from the bathroom into the bedroom, and then beyond into the kitchen and small sitting area. The previous occupant, an elderly woman, had passed away, and the family was pleased to have some income by renting out the place. While they had cleaned out most of the personal possessions, there remained clean towels, essential cooking tools, bed linens, canned goods, and, thankfully, toilet paper. Leonora struggled to occupy herself during those first days in an apartment with no television. 
She listened to the radio in an attempt to learn a little German, and slowly read The Mammoth Hunters, the book she brought with her on vacation. Thankfully, it was long. Very long. Stefan quickly caught on to both her lack of entertainment and abundance of loneliness, and took pity on her by bringing the books he used in his English grammar classes at school. Then, several days into her stay, Stefan stopped by with milk, bread, and an invitation to join his grandmother's card group that night. Desperate for social interaction of any kind, Leonora leapt at the offer. She was to arrive at Gertrude's house, across the street, at 7 p.m. Stefan seemed light on knowledge of the gatherings, saying only that they were really old ladies who played cards. Leonora had quickly caught on to the German emphasis regarding punctuality, so she carefully planned her route, short as it was, to take into account the use of crutches. She had teetered across the cobbled street and hopped awkwardly up the front three stairs to knock on Gertrude's door at exactly seven o'clock. It took Leonora a while to maneuver herself into the kitchen, but once she and her crutches arrived, she blinked in an attempt to see through the cigarette haze already enveloping the room, as five grandmothers gathered for what she soon learned was a card game that had been going on for decades. Dropping into a proffered chair, Leonora realized with surprise that she was being addressed in familiar wording. Gertrude, it seemed, knew English. Leonora quickly realized that while Gertrude was the most fluent, Elsbeth, Greta, Philomena, and Frida knew quite a bit as well. Through a mixture of English, German, strident pointing, and expansive gestures, Leonora soon learned the first of several card games the friends had played together for more than 60 years. Her eyes stung from the choking fumes at first, but she soon grew used to the setting. These card games, it turned out, were not just a weekly activity. These women got together nearly every night. Leonora also learned that Elsa, the former tenant of the apartment she now occupied, had been a dearly loved member of the group. As the ladies explained the next evening, it seemed appropriate to invite Leonora to join in, given the housing connection. Greta also remarked that the grandmothers were pleased to provide hospitality for a child from the United States of America. Leonora realized there were no other foreigners in this tiny town, so she counted as an exotic specimen. Of course, their desire for an even number of card players probably factored more strongly into the invitation. Regardless, she was delighted to join and found that she looked forward to the evening gathering each day. How do you know English? Leonora asked one night. The war, said Gertrude, with her usual efficiency of speech, as if that explained everything. Leonora pondered this as the evening went on, deciding that perhaps the ladies had learned English from British troops after World War II. While they seemed like fixtures here, it was not clear where these ladies were originally from. If they had lived in this tiny village all of their lives, or had come here after growing up elsewhere, very little time was ever spent discussing the past, which seemed odd to Leonora. Of course, she'd grown up without grandparents, so her sole reference for senior citizens was based on her viewing of the Golden Girls. The conversation soon moved to Vilmina's son, who had relocated to what was described as a big city, where he worked in automobile manufacturing and rarely came home to visit. On a subsequent night, as Leonora took her turn as dealer, Gertrude looked at her and said in English, I learned from your soldiers. U.S. soldiers, not the Brits, thought Leonora. Interesting. And as for the war, these ladies were elderly. 
They had no doubt lived through more than one conflict. But it was clear the topic was not the one of most interest that night, Elsbeth having just had a visit from a granddaughter home from university. The cards were a serious business, and the cigarettes, one lit from the last, a continuous intake of nicotine, players pausing only to tell stories of family members, unruly neighborhood children, the price of bread, that day's butcher order, and the goats that escaped from a farm down the road and ate up all of the lettuce in Frida's garden. The attendees made great efforts to explain as much as possible in English for Leonora's sake, and to teach her German words and phrases. Leonora, for her part, added to the conversation primarily by answering their questions about the U.S. The women wanted to know why Americans took long daily showers, something they found nearly scandalous. They were fascinated by Leonora's preference for water straight from the tap, and inquired if this was what other people in the U.S. drank. And of course, they wanted to know how many cowboys Leonora knew. Leonora also told them about her experiences with German cuisine. She developed an immediate appreciation for the dark, nutty German bread Stefan acquired from the village baker, as well as the local thick-sliced cheese, often subsisting happily on sandwiches composed of these two items alone. The ladies of the card group realized that Leonora's limited mobility created some cooking challenges, so they began sending family members to Leonora's door on a regular basis, delivering meals and snacks. So many, in fact, that Stefan rarely needed to acquire groceries anymore. Leonora's favorites were schnitzel and spatzel. She kept her feelings about bloodwurst to herself. And the day that a plate of what looked like blubber was delivered was not something she chose to discuss either. The ladies also, it seemed, had a never-ending love affair with sauerkraut. And while it was never one of Leonora's favorites, she gamely ate it nearly every day overwhelmed with homemade offerings from enormous vats of the stuff that each woman seemed to brew in her basement. The acrid tang was detectable across the room of her small apartment, even hours after a meal. Between the sauerkraut and her smoke-filled card-playing clothes, Leonora had started to make frequent use of the early model washing machine contraption in the apartment. The grandmothers must have noticed her near-daily wash hanging from the line, but never commented upon it. Perhaps, she thought, they chalked it up to another American eccentricity. The card games were a constant bright spot in Leonora's otherwise quiet recovery. After each day of reading, napping, eating, and reading again, she would clop to Gertrude's house, hop up the front three stairs on her good leg, cross the living room, and head into the kitchen for an evening of companionship with women more than four times her age. They laughed at her jokes. They listened intently. They patted her hand when they spoke of their faraway children, and, always, they fed her. Despite Leonora's repeated attempts, as she grew in strength and mobility, to tell the card players they did not need to continue feeding her, that she was self-sufficient now, the meal deliveries continued unabated. Leonora stopped protesting and, instead, shared her genuine appreciation for the food, noting the small half-smiles of the grandmothers when she acknowledged their delicious recipes. Weeks later, after Leonora's leg was finally determined flight-worthy, she returned to Gertrude's kitchen for a final evening of cards, this time climbing the front stairs on two feet. She had spent the day packing and making final arrangements to return home. Stefan had kindly offered to drive her to the Munich airport. Tomorrow morning, she would finally be flying home, and her father and uncles would be there to meet her.
As she raised her hand to knock on Gertrude's door, it occurred to her with a start that she would most likely never see these women, who had welcomed her without question, again. In her excitement about finally being able to return home, Leonora had overlooked how hard it would be to say goodbye. She entered the kitchen to find a golden tray of offal strudel awaiting her, a slice of which had been delivered to her house several weeks before, and about which she had raved in her typical American exuberance. Leonora was deeply touched by this gesture. Having learned that the women were more apt to show care through gesture than words, she ate three helpings of strudel between hands of cards. Before Leonora left that evening, she hugged each woman tightly before heading out the door. I want to thank each of you for making me a part of your group, for making me so welcome, for taking care of me, and for feeding me so well. These wonderful women, with their practical aprons covering blouses and skirts, their time-earned faces and hands, these women were her friends. The next morning, it was not a surprise to find Stefan waiting outside her home in the family's long-trusted and high-mileage BMW, well in advance of their predetermined departure time. The surprise was finding Gertrude in the back seat, waving at Leonora to join her. As Stefan drove toward the airport, more aggressively than she had envisioned, but it was the Audubon after all, Gertrude and Leonora talked about a host of topics, as old friends do. It wasn't until much, much later that Leonora realized there wasn't a cigarette in sight during the long drive. In fact, she was having trouble remembering the last time she saw the grandmother smoking during the card parties. She knew they still smoked. She saw them most days on their front steps with cigarettes in hand, pausing from housework. But they had stopped smoking while playing cards. Yet another example of the great kindnesses they had shown her. As they pulled up to the terminal, Leonora leaned over to hug Gertrude once again and thank her for everything. Gertrude reached out and placed her hand very gently on the side of Leonora's face. We were starving, and they fed us. I will never forget your soldiers, or their English words. In an instant, it seemed, the BMW was driving away, already picking up speed as Stefan prepared for Audubon re-entry. The rear window slightly cracked, and a wisp of smoke trailing back toward Leonora. The book group discussion leader has apparently diverted from her stream of consciousness about one of the book's minor characters' poor decision-making skills to huff about speaking with the owner of the cafe about a tobacco-free policy. Leonora has already pivoted her head up toward the sky, located the delicate arc of smoke, and traced it back to the offending cigarette. She picks up her plate of apple strudel and walks across the patio toward the woman with the hat of peacock blue. Our second story is by Adrian Lockhart, who's been writing for years for her own personal enjoyment. She has a few short stories published in some print anthologies and a few novels up for sale on Amazon. Overall, she prefers writing comedy and mysteries. Adrienne Lockhart's story, Checkmate. Ethel Foster realized three things after the death of her late husband, Reginald. The first was that she was now free to sell the hangdog Victorian they had lived in for 35 years and move to the Shady Pines retirement community she had been eyeing for the past six. 
Within a month of Reginald's passing, she was in her own seashell pink and white bungalow in the cul-de-sac of Wishing Lane. Her second realization followed closely on the heels of the first. Reginald Perry Foster had been a consummate slob. Cleaning her new home took a third of the time it would have had he been with her in more than memory, but old habits die hard, and she still went about her chores with the single-minded determination of an army drill sergeant. Her newfound community friends quickly learned to avoid 362 Wishing Lane between the morning hours of 6 and 8 for fear of being spritzed, polished, and scrubbed, along with the rest of Ethel's house. There was never a speck of dust or dander left by 8.15, and it would not have surprised the retired community in the slightest if she began passing out plastic booties at the door. Her third realization was the longest in coming, a year and two months exactly, and that was for her growing attachment to her gangly neighbor, Joe. At 73, he was five years her senior, and though he had a slight stoop in his otherwise broad shoulders, he was still the tallest man in Shady Pines. He spoke with a drawl, and tended to ruffle his hair when lost in thought. Joe's feelings were mutual, and they were soon, as Ethel called it, by harking back to a word from her youth, an item. They made a peculiar pair on their mid-afternoon walks. The crown of Ethel's head barely crept past Joe's elbow, her short gray bob held perfectly in place with two blue barrettes. Her petite frame was edging closer every year to the term pleasantly plump, whereas he appeared more praying mantis than man, arms crooked at the elbows and swinging with each step. The All Hollows dances this week, Ethel said, taking Joe's oversized hand. Yep, Joe answered. They walked in silence for several more minutes, the leaves on the tree-lined road a brilliant rainbow of autumnal colors. Ethel glanced surreptitiously at Joe from the corner of her eye. He was chewing on his bottom lip as they walked, his own gaze fixed solidly on the sidewalk at the horizon. It's going to be a masked dance this year, Ethel cast her line like an experienced fisherman. Huh. He coughed. By the time they reached the community center, Ethel's mouth was pencil-thin, and her vice-like grip on Joe's hand would have had a lesser man in tears. I have Mahjong with Glenda, Ethel announced stiffly at the door. Joe bent down and kissed her blithely on the cheek. He gave her hand a gentle squeeze before he left for his own game of chess, whistling under his breath. The window screens for the kitchen door are missing now, Glenda Matthews said, as she pursed red lips at the tiles on the table. She was swathed in several layers of brightly colored scarves. They clashed loudly with the high dabs of pink blush on her powdered cheeks. Every year, Glenda wore brighter and louder clothing, as though in defiance of the passage of time. At the ripe age of 82, her ensemble fairly glowed, and it was whispered that in the case of a power outage, one only had to invite her over in full regalia as opposed to lighting candles. How in the world did you lose your kitchen screens? Ethel asked. She was sitting with her arms crossed sullenly over her chest, glaring at the southernmost walls in the community game room. Beyond those walls was the bank of picnic tables that Joe and his friends played chess at every afternoon. Not my screens, the community center kitchen screens. Humph. A moment of silence passed between them. Ethel continued to glower at the wall, and Glenda studied her curiously. Well, aren't you just a regular old sourpuss? What's got you by the scruff? Glenda finally asked, her painted eyebrows rolling high on her forehead, 
Joe Pizga, Ethel spat out, her own brow pinching together tightly. He hasn't asked me to the dance yet, and I've been talking about it for a month straight. Pah! Glenda waved a knobby hand in the air dismissively. You know he'll ask. You two do this at every dance, which is saying something considering this community thinks every occasion in the world is worth celebrating. I could have a bowel movement, call it the Great Passing, host the dance, and everyone would come to it like it was the greatest thing since sliced bread, just like they do at every one of these silly things. Glenda smugly set aside a handful of paired tiles before continuing. She pointedly ignored the gaping expression on Ethel's round face. Davy Crofton thinks it's aliens. Kramer's saying kids, and he's already called Sheriff Broming twice today. Says it's an epidemic. It took Ethel a moment to realize Glenda's meandering conversation had returned to the missing screens, only one of many seemingly random items to have gone missing in Shady Pines for the past month. Ah, heck, Glenda. Davy thinks everything has to do with aliens, and Kramer could stub his toe on his bed and blame kids for it. They fell back into a comfortable silence for several more minutes. The only sound between them was the quiet click of the painted ceramic tiles. He's taken to wearing an aluminum foil hat. Says it keeps out the rays. Who? Ethel glanced up, confused again. She had been busy studying the table, suspecting Glenda of cheating, as she was apt to do. Davy. It's unacceptable, I tell you. These kids are just running rampant out there, going wild. Feral. Kramer smacked a beefy hand against the picnic table, setting both the chess pieces and his chins to wobbling. Joe only sighed and righted his toppled bishop. Think that's a bit extreme there, Kramer? Bernard Hunt replied from beside Joe. He had been idly watching their match for the past hour, waiting his turn to play the winner. Only the three of them and Davy occupied the tables this afternoon. The latter had been staring intently at a chessboard since the three had arrived, and not once had he moved a single piece. Bernard knew better than to ask Davy for a round, and the small aluminum cap that was sitting on his head reaffirmed that philosophy. Who asked you, hippie? Kramer glowered at Bernard's bedraggled gray ponytail, a remnant of his youth that he refused to part with. Bernard stamped his cane emphatically against the ground, opening his mouth to retort. Checkmate. Joe's lazy voice floated up between them. What? Impossible! Impossible? Kramer turned his attention back to the board and studied the pieces, murmuring under his breath angrily. Bernard smirked. My turn. Kramer begrudgingly slid his bulk over as Bernard took his place. He and Joe began replacing the pieces on the checkered board. I was telling Glenda that I think we have an epidemic on our hands. Kramer silenced Bernard with a glare before continuing. First it was the silverware, then Ma'am Akers' television antennae, and now the kitchen screens? Something fishy is going on here, I tell you. Joe pushed a pawn up two squares before exchanging a glance with Bernard. Fishy how? he finally asked, taking the bait. Kramer leaned forward across the table, his voice dropping low and conspiratorial until everyone was huddled close together to hear what he had to say. I think we might be dealing with a cult. Christ, Kramer, seriously? A cult? For crying out loud. Bernard turned back to the chessboard and slapped his own pawn into place. 
What do you know, Bernard? The blood rushed to Kramer's face, turning into a brilliant shade of purple. I've been reading up on this stuff, you know, and watching the crime channel. It usually starts in small towns where these kids have nothing to do except play killer video games and practice Satanism. Joe coughed. Pretty soon we'll be up to our eyeballs in witches and devil worship. Just you wait. And none of this would have happened if they had kept corporal punishment in the public schools, if you ask me. Werner is missing his satellite dish. Glenda's voice came over the speakerphone the following morning as Ethel concentrated on polishing the wooden cabinet that held her needlepoint collection. The tip of her tongue poked out between her teeth as she worked. It was there on his roof when he went to sleep last night, but this morning, gone. Ethel moved on to the bay window in the living room, exchanging her wood polish for a bottle of ammonia and a handful of crumpled newspaper. The window pane squeaked as she worked. Sheriff Broming stopped by his place. I saw everything from the front porch. He even took fingerprints. Ethel glanced up from her work and shot the phone a bewildered look. Fingerprints? He got on the roof? I thought he was scared of heights. No one in Dunn County knew the story of Sheriff Broming's acrophobia, but everyone knew the result of his reaching a height greater than a stepladder. Sheer, hysterical panic, accompanied by a sound similar to a dying hyena. Huh. Ethel went back to scrubbing the windows. You would think I would have heard him from here. There was a moment of silence where both women pondered the mile-and-a-half distance between their houses. Glenda proposed that perhaps the incoming cold front had managed to muffle the noise. Ethel allowed that perhaps it had. Kramer's having a field day with this. He followed Sheriff Broming's police car and gave him his two cents about the whole affair. It's strange that a man who knows so little can still talk for so long. There was a strangled sound by the doorway. Ethel turned to find Joe in the foyer, his face flushed, and his lips curled up ever so slightly at the corners. He quickly waved her concern aside and coughed for good measure. When she'd been younger, Ethel had always sworn that she would never end up as the elderly couple that held up traffic for ten miles by creeping down the highway at a snail's pace. She scowled at the speedometer from the passenger seat. When Joe took the wheel, even grass moved faster. You were a cop for 42 years, Joe. Don't tell me you drove this slow on duty. He didn't answer until he had pulled into the parking lot of the local mall, taking care to signal at each junction. Methodically, he checked every switch, brake, lever, and clasp on the dashboard before shutting off the engine and unbuckling his seatbelt. I rode a bicycle. Ethel digested this piece of information as they strolled into the building, hand in hand. She steered him to the arts and crafts store, hunkered in the back corner of the lower level. The All Hallows dance was the following night, and she had taken on the task of designing their masks with a fanatic zeal. Joe looked askance at the heaping mounds of feathers, beads, bells, and charms in the bottom of the handbasket. There seemed to be an alarming number of pastel ribbons in his unvoiced opinion. Oh look, a bookstore! Over there behind the escalator, Ethel pointed eagerly, wrapping her free hand around the crook of Joe's elbow after they paid at the register. He braced himself for another neck-wrenching round of being dragged through the crowd. Buy one, get two free. I just love these deals. 
Joe hummed in mandatory appreciation before sidling away and ducking into the nearest aisle of shelves. He found Davy, aluminum cap still securely anchored to his head, peering intently at the pages of a massive book recounting famous chess games. I opened with the Latvian gambit, and things have gotten a bit out of hand, he said after noticing Joe. Davy was an avid correspondence chess player. Joe nodded sympathetically. They both spent several moments quietly studying the vast array of combinations in the book. Davy pursed his lips thoughtfully at a recount of some of the famous Kasparov games. Joe clucked his tongue. There you are. Look what I found. It's a... Oh, Davy. Ethel stopped beside Joe awkwardly and gave a small wave, twiddling her fingers at him. Her eyes were drawn to the tufts of hair that stuck out wildly around the edges of the tinfoil hat. Ethel. Davy closed the book and hugged it to his chest after pushing his bifocals up to the bridge of his nose. Several people skirted the aisle after noticing Davy. One woman in particular, toddler in tow, was whispering to the store manager while shooting furtive glances over her shoulder. Um, Davy, Ethel began. She paused, unsure of how to proceed tactfully. Do you think maybe you should, well, wear a hat? I mean, another hat, to cover that, um... Floundering, Ethel shot Joe a pleading look, but he only shrugged. Davy touched his head quizzically. I mean, just for when you're out of the neighborhood. I don't think it would interfere with any of its, um, signal. Right, Joe? Right, Joe said after Ethel painfully jabbed him in the ribs with an elbow. It's to block the rays, Davy explained his face taking on the exaggerated pains of one talking to a small child. They use mind-reading beams. Oh, good. Another hat would just be added protection, then. Ethel trailed off, beleaguered, and heavy silence fell. She shuffled her feet and cleared her throat. Davy thoughtfully prodded his aluminum cap. Joe glanced back and forth from Davy to Ethel before sighing heavily. He draped a companionable arm over Ethel's shoulders, already regretting what he was about to put himself through. Didn't you want to show me something? He asked her, providing them all a much-needed distraction. What? Oh, oh, yes. Ethel turned and bustled excitedly to the bargain bin at the head of the store, tugging Joe along behind her. So long, Davy. Joe. You look wonderful, Joe. Absolutely wonderful. Don't you think so, Glenda? Ethel clapped her hands excitedly after she slipped on the homemade mask. He looks like a flamingo. If you ever get bored, Joe, you can wear that thing and sit in my yard as a lawn ornament on weekends. Joe wore the stoic expression of a man resigned to wearing a two-foot-tall feathered and beaded pink mask at a public gathering. Are you sure you won't come, Glenda? I made an extra mask for you just in case. Glenda edged her walker closer to the front door. She eyed the spare mask warily. I have few precious hours left in my life, Ethel, and I don't intend to spend them ingesting that much glitter. The All Hallows dance was a roaring success when judged by the standards of Shady Pines. The only dancing involved the slow and complicated shuffle of canes across the floor. Those less agile merely stood and swayed companionably to the music. Kramer and Bernard had huddled beside the refreshment table for the entirety of the dance 
joined together in mutual disdain and mockery over Joe's mask. I don't think I've ever seen anything more fit to be called an abomination, Kramer theorized. This beats even Werner over there. Bernard gestured to the hunched figure several feet away, nibbling on quiche through a plastic caricature of Richard Nixon. Easily. The abomination in question wasn't removed until Joe and Ethel were walking home later that evening. Joe took it off with a noticeably relieved expression, one that quickly converted to bored contentment when Ethel glanced up. What a lovely dance. I'm so glad we went, aren't you? She hugged his arm. Joe grunted. They continued on in silence for several more minutes, until a loud crash echoed through the night. It was followed by a bright strobe of light from the shed to their left as they neared Wishing Lane. Isn't that Davy's house? Ethel asked. Yep. Davy's profile appeared briefly in the building's only window before toppling suddenly backward. Another crash sounded. Maybe we should check on him. They peeked inside the metal shed to find Davy standing precariously on a wobbly stepladder, a wrench in hand. He was tightening a bolt that held Werner's satellite dish atop a confusing jumble of wires and odd bits of accoutrement. Davy! Ethel admonished, using her most chastising tone. He spun around, a red and gray plaid pub hat nearly slipping free from his head. There was a brief shine of tinfoil underneath. Oh, you took my advice! Ethel clapped gleefully, momentarily distracted by a glow of self-satisfaction. The hat looks splendid on you, Davy. Davy set aside the wrench and patted his hat nervously. Joe stepped forward to study the strange setup. A fax machine sat on a small stool, wired into the haphazard pile of stolen loot. In front of it was a table with Davy's chessboard. Joe shoved his hands into his pockets and eyed the chess pieces. Had or no had, of course, Ethel began again. That still doesn't excuse your running around Shady Pines and stealing. My transmitter broke. Davy stood on the tips of his shoes and nudged Mammaker's antennae further to the right. He scratched his chin before turning to rummage through a toolbox. Transmitter? For my game. He gestured toward the chessboard as he climbed down the stepladder. It clattered loudly as he folded it up and set it aside. I have a deadline. I didn't want to miss their next move. There? The aliens? Davy plugged in the fax machine and depressed the power switch. It buzzed and turned to life. Aliens? Ethel glanced nervously over at Joe, but he was still busy hemming and hawing over the chess pieces. You mean the ones you wear the aluminum cap for? Davy glanced at his watch and fidgeted. They were cheating, reading my mind. He tapped his temple, his expression serious. It's like playing cards with Glenda. You just know it's not a fair game. Ethel paused. She couldn't argue with that last part. The satellite dish emitted a strange high-pitched whine, a zigzag of electricity shot between Mam's antennae, and the fax machine spun to life, cranking out a sheet of paper. Davy pushed past Joe and ripped it free. His shoulders slumped and he glowered at the board. Ethel peeked around the two men to read the message. Rook to E7. Checkmate. Next game? 
They stood for a moment of congenial and, in the case of Ethel, quizzical silence for Davy. Joe gave him a conciliatory pat on the shoulder. Give me a call when you start your next game. Davy nodded gratefully, but continued to glower at his pieces. After a few minutes, Joe and Ethel said their goodbyes and continued on their way back to 362 Wishing Lane. Should we tell anyone? Ethel asked finally as they reached their cul-de-sac. I mean, after all, he's not hurting anyone, is he? Ma'am hasn't used that antenna in years, and the cable station will replace Werner's satellite for free. And the rest? Some fake silverware and a couple of screens? Ethel trailed off, and Joe took her hand, squeezing it gently. Let's not tell anyone, she said after a while, leaning back to study the stars overhead. The only constellation she could make out was the Big Dipper on a clear night, and even that was suspect. Was the Dipper more bowl-shaped or ladle? Do you really think he is playing with aliens? Joe shrugged. Well, he's certainly playing with someone. Ethel opened her front door and stepped inside. When you help him with the next game, he'll probably insist on you wearing a cap. Uh Uh-huh. I can make one for you. Joe froze in mid-step. I know I can make your aluminum hat so much more stylish than Davy's. Maybe I should make him one, too. Ethel rummaged excitedly through a nearby drawer for a measuring tape. Joe glanced down at the mask in his hand and sighed. The glitter had rubbed off during their walk and coated his fingers. He set it aside and kissed Ethel gently on the forehead. Four houses down, a saucer lowered silently from the sky. It hovered over Davy's shed. Seconds later, his newest copy of Comprehensive Chess Strategies ascended materializing through the roof. Cheating! Cheating! Davy screamed in pursuit. The saucer flashed once and shot away. That wraps up this Thanksgiving episode, and we're so thankful that you decided to listen with us today. If you like what we do, in the spirit of giving thanks, we'd love it if you wrote us a review on iTunes. You know, with Thanksgiving over, Christmas is coming up, And I don't ask for much, but one review would really make me happy. Our next episode should be out on December 8th, and we might feature a Christmas story or two because we've gotten a few of those. Remember to check out our website, secondhandpodcast.com. You can listen to our past episodes there, or find guidelines on the kinds of stories we're looking for. Happy Thanksgiving, and slow down and listen up with us again.